Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and today I'm here with not just one, but two really, really smart soccer people, Jordan Angeli, my co-host. Jordan, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And the second really smart soccer person we've got on is our guest, Bobby Warshaw. Bobby, how is life treating you? You guys, when I listen to your show, you don't tell listeners that you do it from dark closets. <laughs> not just closets because of the sound quality, but dark closets. Oh, we should. It really sets the tone and the mood, right? What you should do is turn on a light in there. <laughs> We're over Skype right now, and you guys don't even have lights on where you are, and I have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> On the west side of the U.S., Bobby, they don't actually make light fixtures. So that's what we're working with out here. (laughs) We wanted to have you on the show, Bobby, because not only were you a huge help in getting MLS Assist off the ground and apparently roasting us about our light and production quality, but we, and I know a lot of other people, (laughs) miss getting to hear your thoughts and read your work on soccer-y things. So this is our, our kind of attempt to remedy that, at least in a small way. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have a lot of random soccer things going through my head these days, so... Yeah. Hopefully your fans are ready. <laughs> and, and we've been absolutely loving that. And I think today we want to not only hit on those random soccery things that are happening in your in your brain, but we want to talk background, some tactics and a little bit of MLS tactical landscape. What's happening throughout the league that you've noticed over the last few years. So is that, if that all sounds good, we're going to just get rolling. Perfect. Let's do it. OK, Bobby. How does one from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, become a professional soccer player? Oh, that's a really good question. So we've actually had a couple. You know who the first one from Mechanicsburg was? Uh, and this is some deep cut MLS trivia. He was a <laughs> winger for DC United in the mid to late 2000s. He won a championship. He wasn't very skillful, but he was incredibly hardworking. Ooh. There's no reason you would know this. Josh Gross. Josh Gross. Does that ring a bell? So we didn't go to the same high school, but the same mailing address, Mechanicsburg. Okay. Um, you know, I just think that the types of players we produce in central Pennsylvania, and and I think even Polisic, who's clearly more skilled and faster than the rest of us, um, has this too. It's just a hardworking desire, right? Uh, those are the types of players we, we create, which worked well in the earlier days of Major League Soccer. You know, we probably aren't quite as technical as you would need to be now. Um, but at that point... Uh, I had a skill set that that worked well for what colleges and pro teams were looking for. Did that skill set back when you were making it into the college ranks and the pro ranks? Is that what set you apart and kind of work you towards getting that scholarship with Stanford? Yeah, I was I was the most intense player that <laughs> you would probably ever see at that age group, which sets me out. That automatically made coaches look. I'll give myself a little bit more credit. I mean, I was a pretty good number ten throughout high school and the early part of college, right? Like I was Pac-10 freshman of the year. Um, some full national American teams as a number 10. So I had a little bit more ability on the ball than I give myself credit for. But the number one thing, you know, you have to have, you know, we all love talking about tactics and talking about the nuances of the game, but you have to have just that general desire to compete every second. Uh, and I did have that, which I think gave me a little bit of a head start. Do you also think that's why you're able to adapt? Like you said, you started as a 10, but I know you played center back as well. And in that desire to compete, you're like, I don't really care where I play. I just want to play and contribute. Yeah. You know what? It was my brother who is an, you know, an old school OG MLS soccer fan, uh, MLS fan, U.S. soccer fan who said, Bob, you might be a perfectly fine collegiate number 10. No way in hell are you going to make MLS as a number 10. <laughs> He was like, you know what you're going to make MLS as? You're going to make it as a center back or a kick other people really hard defensive midfielder. Because that's just that's what it is. Nobody's signing a number 10 
out of the Pac-12, you know? Um, so my sophomore year, my brother was like, dude, you should ask your coach. It won't be as fun, but it gives you a better chance. And sure enough, that's what happened. So you asked your coach to move you to center back. Yeah, we had we had had an injury and I wasn't I was going through a sophomore slump, which was very real. And it was best for the team. It's what I needed in that moment. And it worked out. That's interesting. I know. Nobody, I got, asked, nobody asked to move out of that number 10, huh? Right. I, I got moved there and I was like, OK, I'll try it. <laughs> and it's fun, right? Yeah, like it is really fun. At a high level, you know, I wouldn't want to go out and play in the backyard as a center back. Um, but at a high level, it's really fun because it feels like you have more. I always struggled playing farther up the field, which I did at some points when I was in Scandinavia, because I didn't feel like I had control. There's only I'm only looking at my striker or the other team's defenders. Whereas as a center back, you can look at all 20 players and it's more mentally invigorating to be back there. Or at least that's a story I told myself. <laughs> So after you shift, you shift back to defense and you, you make it to the professional ranks and you're playing and your career ends, right? How did you decide what the next step was after playing professional soccer? Because I know, and Jordan, you can speak to this. That's a tough transition. I, cry, I cried in bed a lot, uh, <laughs> sat in dark rooms, went for long walks. Much like Jordan and I are doing now, I might add. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it looked exactly like this, minus your microphones. Uh, no, there's no good, I mean, there, there's no good way to do it. Uh, what I did is I manufactured the idea of writing the book. So I created the book, which is a memoir about the experience of playing, which was 95% just to give myself something to do, just a reason to get out of bed. Um, I created a little small business out of it. I applied to business schools with it. Uh, but there's no good way to transition. I made up the idea of writing the book. That book and other lucky opportunities led to the MLS job. Yeah. Well, I think, too, just when you're going through that transition, it's you have to have some kind of like therapeutic outlet. And for you, that book probably helped you get yeah. through that like muck. Right. Because it's a weird it's a really weird phase in life. And um, but it seems to have worked out for you. And we, we Joe and I already mentioned we we miss hearing you talk MLS soccer all the time. And a lot of that is because we just you know, you connected Joe and I because, you know, you knew my love for tactics and you had the same love for tactics. So when when do you would you say that your love for the game and trying to break down the game in a, a different way really started? Uh, I would say as a little kid, for better or for worse, I was a little kid who the coach would say something and be like, I don't, I don't know what you're, what you're doing right now. This doesn't make sense. Uh, this is the wrong thing to do. And probably when I was 10 years old, my coaches hated me for it. Um, but I've just, I've always been that way. I've always been a why kid, you know, why are we doing this? What are we doing? And to be fair in whatever it was, 2000, 2002, when I was a youth soccer player, there weren't a ton of tactics to begin with, you know, sweeper stopper. Remember those days, Jordan? Oh yeah. Uh, so it's not like we were going over a lot, um, but just little things, formation, where are you playing people? I always questioned. And I would say, unfortunately, I actually never had, even through youth soccer, college professional, I never had a coach who tactically blew my mind. So a lot of the stuff was me just in the middle of the game or watching other teams, trying to figure out and trying to piece them together. And when you're on the field, and Jordan, I know you know this too, when you're on the field, there's just times when you know your team is outmatched, not mm -hmm. player wise, not personnel, just in general preparation as a team. And you're like, what the hell is happening right now? Why does it feel like we are getting hit by a waterfall every single second? Because this team is so well prepared. Uh, and that happens to you enough times. And you realize just the significance that those details and preparation can have. For sure. And I think that leads us into just Joe and I really wanted to talk to you 
about, you know, how you analyze a game. And um, I love that Joe titled this, this section, Bobby Warshaw, the tactician. So (laughs) brush off your shoulder with that one. Um, Okay. So one of the things I think about a lot is like, if there, if you walk by, there's a game on TV, you know, what happens to your brain? Are you automatically in like, I'm going to analyze this or can you watch games for fun as well? Uh, I actually watch games for fun more often than I don't. I mean, there's always some part that has a sense of what's going on and what should be happening. Uh, but at the core of it, I grew up a soccer fan. You know, my, my dad played in, in college, played in the over 40s, over 50 leagues. My brothers played. We were fans, you know, going to D.C. United in 1996. Um, so I would say more often than not, I do watch it for enjoyment. But at the same time, and, and Joe, you picked up on this, too, because I don't know if you wrote about it, but you tweeted about it from the LAFC documentary, the Bob Bradley quote. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes I watch a game and just try and see if three plays make sense. And I think about this all of the time. And I'm so glad that you that you magnified that and and talked about that quote, because it's so important, because sometimes you're watching a game and just whether you're actually paying attention to the formations and the concepts and the larger principles, you're just like, this doesn't make any sense right now. You know, there's no actual patterns of play. There's no cohesive ideas. There's no players moving in unison. Um, so I, oh, I generally watch for fun, but you can't help but notice whether the game makes sense in that in those certain moments. So when you are analyzing a game, when the when the switch is flipped and you're watching games and critically analyze them, is there a system that you use or or now are you more in the phase of I'm just going to look and see what makes sense and see what intrigues me? Or is there more of a dedicated transfer those ideas from my brain to the paper? Most, most of the time, there's no specific method. I mean, when I, you take the MLS job, for example, we watched... I should say I personally watched probably 90% of the games, you know, each team played whatever it is, 34 games. I probably watched 30 from each team. And to a certain, at a certain point, you know what to look for, for teams, whether they're accentuating their strengths, whether they're trying to fix their weaknesses, whether something new happened to the group and they're trying to adjust that that's when certain specifics start to come in. But I would say generally, you know, right now, if I just put a game on in the background, uh, you know, after watching however many games, 10,000, 100,000, I have no idea, just the pictures. You know, you guys ever hear the thing about the chess players, where if you put a chess player in the park and you just have a, a truck drive, drive by with a picture of a, of a chessboard, that, play, that chess player has just seen so many different sets of chess on a board that they can just put it down right away because they've seen it. Um, so I would say that's generally what's happening is you know what the picture is supposed to look like, and then you just rely on those general foundations. And I have a, I have a side question on that before I ask, cause I'm curious about Jordan's way of analyzing games as well. Bobby, I've tried to watch all the games in a weekend. Like last year for the athletic, I was writing kind of a weekly tactical column like you or mm-hmm. like Doyle would do for MLS. And my eyes wanted to fall out of my head or I wanted to gouge them out of my head. Not because, <laughs> not because it wasn't enjoyable sometimes, but it wasn't enjoyable all the time. It was hard work watching all that soccer. How did you do that? How did you survive watching that many games for that much of an extended period of time? Yeah, dude, it's hard. It was like that. The 24 observations thing was like one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. You know, doing it 34 times last year. Mm. Um, you know what game? So I can only personally do obviously one game at the, the level I like. And then I can really only do uh, three games where I feel like I'm taking it in. And then, over, you know, if it's more than three games at once, I have to do on Monday morning. And then you wake up Monday, you watch them. I would usually download them and watch them on fast track on one of the the video players. 
Uh, yeah, but Joe, it's not fun. Like I would, it was actually a little bit disappointing because I would say some of my passion about MLS was lost in the last few years just because I didn't actually get to enjoy games very often. It's just an overload when you're watching that much. I know the first couple of weeks, even doing this podcast with Joe, those first couple of weeks, I'm like, I don't know which game to watch. I don't know what to do. How do we, <laughs> how do we do this? You really have to figure out what works for you. And it sounds like there at MLS, you, you figured out what your setup had to be in order to succeed. Yeah. And I will say that the truth is there's only two or three games a weekend that you really want to key in on. And then after that, you're just finding an interesting thing, mm-hmm. right? Just one yeah. thing. Cause then you can sink your teeth into that. So I'd say maybe that's a little bit of how the sausage is made. Just going off that question that Joe asked you though, I'm curious for you, Joe, how do you analyze games? What's your process of doing that? This is still a thing that I'm, I'm working on and refining. I think you and I have been interested in talking about this on the show in the past. So I'm glad this is a chance for us to do that. I've, I've not fully established my system. I take a lot of notes. I take a lot of notes for timestamps because when I'm writing an article, I need to go back and find specific plays, but that's not necessarily something that I like to do. That's more of something that I have to do to get the product that I'm looking for out. Um, but when I watch games, I try to observe basic foundational things from each team, overall style, how they're playing, the tempo that they're playing, where they're setting up, are they trying to press, and, and if so, in what way. But this is still largely a thing that I'm refining. What Bobby touched on at the end there is of looking for interesting things. I tend to still find myself looking for those interesting things, maybe instead of the more detailed picture, the overall picture. So I don't know. It's a work in progress. What about for you? I would agree. I I don't have a system like I don't say I'm going to go in and watch this game and check all these things off the list. Like I, I know personally going into a game, how teams are going to set up like, but that's just the start, right? Like, how are they? T- what formations are they going to be in? But from there, I'm always looking at things that just make me be like, huh, like either, whoa, like that was a really good play or like, what's happening here? Why does this seem so difficult? Or why is this? Um, Because if it's difficult on one team, then the other team is probably doing a really good job of making it difficult for them, right? So then I start to key key in on a certain player or a certain line of defense or attack that just is maybe the cause and effect of that. And you know, the hardest part is figuring out what's intentional and what's not intentional. Sometimes (laughs) interesting things, and especially in Major League Soccer, more than any other league, probably not more than League MX, but uh, sometimes something cool happens and you don't even know if it was on purpose or just something that happened in that moment. Yeah, it's a really good point. And actually, that I feel like that leads into this next question that I've been thinking about. And um, I know that there's this big idea around culture and like creating a culture within a team. And Bobby, you're now a coach. And I am just curious for you, uh, how do you create a culture when you want to establish a team? And do tactics breed a culture or do does a culture breed tactics? Oh, we're going for the big questions now. (laughs) Man, first thing is, yeah, culture precedes anything else. You can have ideas and principles of play of how you want your team to look on the field. But if you don't have a a general culture about about just intensity and focus and following general team cohesive ideas, you're going to be in trouble. And that's the first thing you have to do. So when I coach and again, I'm not coaching MLS teams, I'm not coaching academies. It's just, you know, local New York teams. Um, the first thing we do is we set an incredibly high bar for everything, both technically and tactically. So like the first drills we do, if the spin isn't right, if the weight of the pass isn't right, if the bounce isn't right, all of these things. And we spend six, eight, 12 weeks just being really hard on those because once you have that precedent, yeah, it helps 
to make better soccer players, but it also helps get their brain set on this is who we are going to be every single day. We are going to be a team that cares about the spin of every single pass. And then once you get that and you create that sense of urgency in the people and the players, then you can start to do everything else a little bit quicker and better. One thing you said there that I think might be helpful for listeners is you mentioned you can have your principles of play. And I think sometimes people get principles of play and tactics confused. Do you see that as a common uh, thing that kind of gets mushed together? And why don't you go ahead and explain those, the differences between those things, Bobby, as well? Yeah. So I would say the principles of play are your, your larger concepts. You know, if a tactic might be specifically, how are you going to press or how are we going to build out your principle of play is I think that there's two ways you can do this. Um, for me, my principle of play is like even even broader, and we are going to try and build out because in building out, you can do X, Y, and Z. We are a team that's going to press because by pressing, we are a team that can do A, B, and C. Other people would say the principles of play are their compactness defensively, 25 yards, things like spacing, things like movements. That's a little bit too refined for me. But just in general, principles of play are macro and tactics are a little bit more specific and micro. So for our listeners that don't know, Bobby, you've been writing a series of articles on the immaculately named BobbyWarshaw.com called Soccer Things I've Been Thinking About Lately that gets into some of this nitty gritty stuff that Jordan and I love to talk about and have talked about some on this show. It's a lot of really creative insight and detailed analysis of tactical things. What inspired you to write that series in the first place, Bobby? I guess I can say this to you guys, and you guys probably have a similar feeling. The first few weeks of the break from soccer, I was really disappointed in the content that people were putting out in the English language. Um, a lot of people didn't have games. They didn't have news and they just like fell away. Um, and I, I'm like, do you guys not like soccer? You're not interested <laughs> in soccer. This is the time to have these really interesting conversations, which is what you guys do in your show every week. And, and Joe, what you do with your writing, you have these conversations that are deeper than just like news or whatever happening in the moment. So the main thing was like, somebody has got to write about this stuff. You know, somebody has to give people a little bit of, of food for thought during this break. Um, the second part is I think it was just therapeutic for me. It was good to uh, to wake up and all of these things that because once you have to actually write, I'll actually tell you where the first one started. Uh, we were doing video for our girls, you know, our, our first Zoom session and I'm trying to plan it. And I think a big part of thinking about the way your team wants to play is obviously how you're going to score goals. I'm a big believer that from a goal kick, from any single moment, your team should have a concept of how you're going to score. Um, and it might not work out like that because weird things happens on a field, but there should just be a general understanding through all 11 people on the field. These are the different options we have. Uh, and I specifically call them danger zones, right? We are going to use the ball methodically to create these certain chances on, or get, to get to these certain, spo certain spots or create these moments. Um, so I'm figuring out how I'm going to teach these 14 year old girls about danger zones and even more so why do danger zones matter? Um, and as you guys know, because nobody actually is that good at scoring a soccer ball. All you can actually do is create a good shot. That's really the entire sport of soccer is creating high probability shots. So then how do you create high probability shots? So basically I'm, I'm sitting there for like a 48 hour span, figuring out how to break this down to its most uh, refined parts to explain to 14 year olds, basically the essence of soccer. And what helped me do that was right. Uh, so I, I wrote out a column on it. It was bad. I didn't post it. Um, but effectively 
it got me thinking I should I should inspect and look back on all of these thoughts I have about this sport and writing is a good way to do that. Because if, if you can't write it out in a logical progression, then you're probably not thinking about it the right way. I also am just curious with that. Do you, does Danger Zone, the song, play through your head every time you say that? Because it does, it didn't, but it might now. And I, I guess I every time to, to I'm just that. like highway to the Danger Zone. Listeners, this is this is the second time that Jordan has sung on this show already, and we're only a couple months into this thing. I love it. <laughs> Um, so that's really interesting. And, and I like how you kind of reverse engineered that Bobby. And you realized that through trying to teach your athletes about this specific thing, you wanted to teach them that writing actually was what was going to help you through this. And there's some really cool articles on there and some ones that have made me think I, I liked your one about specific words to use um, for your team. I know that was something that was big that was harped on with Jerry Smith. When I went to Santa Clara, like that was one of the first things we did is create a awareness of what words we were going to use in certain situations. So we understood each other on the field, but for you, when you you're looking over these articles that you wrote what was the maybe your favorite idea or thought that has come out of that series or maybe it's not even one that you have written about yet or one that you're kind of contemplating so i don't know if i had a favorite i think my favorite right now is the one about the inverted defenders just because i I should have a clause and it's interesting i thought about this every time should there be a clause at the top to be like i don't know if any of this stuff is actually true (laughs) right like i don't know if i'm right Um, it's just, we never have these conversations. I mean, you take that one in MLS. I think it all started. I remember specifically the idea that Yamil Assad should potentially play left back when that year he got traded to DC. And it was honestly like, it was a last paragraph among four options on what they can do with Yamil Assad. So I didn't even write the article. Yamil Assad should play left back. It was like, here's the fourth best option. And maybe, you know, there's a 1% chance they do it. And people jumped on it. And my response was like, you got he can't play left back because he's right footed. Um, and I'm not positive about that, but it really made me think like why I actually don't even know why left backs have to be left footed. Why can a left winger be right footed, but a left back can't. Um, so I just think that one, because it really made me go down to like the base concepts in soccer uh, and, and think deeply about those things, which I, I don't spend enough time doing. And it's interesting that you mentioned that one in particular, Bob, because I made a video for my for my own Twitter account, essentially looking at Serginho Dest with the national team and looking at how as a, a right footed player, he potentially could be the best option at left back. And overwhelmingly, the response was was positive and thought provoking. But there are always sometimes those moments and those people that are, are just immediately not willing to consider those thoughts, whether or not they're good ideas in the first place is sometimes irrelevant, right? This is intended to be thought provoking. And I think that's a lot of what you're doing. And I, I truly appreciate that as someone who's trying to take some of this quarantine and coronavirus time to contemplate soccer and to figure out what the heck is going on with the sport and why we do some things versus other things. Yeah, Joe, I'll tell you this. So I am incredibly judgmental about, so what about content? Like I went into MLS um, wanting to talk about soccer and now that you guys are in this and Joe, you're, you're kind of like building up into it. Jordan's been in it for eight years now. I mean, it, it's content creation. It's not just talking soccer. And I am judgmental, especially now about content creation. Um, and your video was the best content that's come out of this. It was so good. In, in a time when people should be creative and innovative and risk taking, um, 
nobody has. And your video was intelligent. It was witty. It was really well produced. I don't know if you have video editing skills. Um, that was that was the best piece of content to come out of this quarantine. Well, thank you, Bobby. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. Believe it or not, listeners, we did not bring Bobby on to hype me up, although he has done a remarkably good job of that so far. Hey, this is MLS assist producer Daryl. I apologize for cutting in because I know that this is a fascinating conversation. I'm here to let you know about today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by The Black Tucks. I'm sure you've already heard us talk about The Black Tucks on the Total Soccer Show over the past couple of weeks. You've heard that TheBlackTucks.com is the place to rent high-quality suits or tuxedos for big events. You've heard how TheBlackTucks.com helps you get the fit right and gives you two weeks to make adjustments if needed. So today I'm here to make the pitch for why TheBlackTucks.com is a URL worth remembering. It's because when all this is over and we can all gather again, we can celebrate, we can go to weddings and other events, it is going to be magnificent. I also predict that it might be hectic. Think how many weddings and events are being postponed right now. Those things are being postponed until a later date. A lot of those later dates are all going to come along at once. And when they do, you'll want to remember theblacktux.com so that you can go to those events looking your finest. You can also get 10% off your suit or tuxedo rental at theblacktux.com when you use the code SOCCER. That's code SOCCER for 10% off at theblacktux.com. One more time, SOCCER, 10% off theblacktux.com. Formal wear for the moment. And we're all looking forward to that moment. Okay, thank you for listening. I will send you back to Joe and Jordan's conversation with Bobby Warshaw. I want to turn it back to you. One of the other things you've written about in that series on BobbyWarshaw.com, another plug there, is the idea of playmakers shifting further and further back down the field. You use Liverpool as the example with their fullbacks providing so many chance creation opportunities for that team. The timing of that article that you wrote was really interesting because on this on this show, Jordan and I were asked if the outside backs will become more important than central midfielders as playmakers in the future. I, I don't remember exactly what we said, but I don't think we said absolutely. We had more like reserved responses about it. And then you come out with that piece. And I'm much more intrigued about that idea now. Uh, yeah. So let me say this. That's right. I, playmakers have been dead for like 10 years. If you if you haven't noticed that the number 10 position has not existed uh, for 10 years, and I literally I fight with Doy about this every day. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about, man? Like, I know that you fell in love with soccer because of the Enganches, but like they're they're no longer exist in this sport. Um, especially in Major League Soccer. Like to sign a number 10 in Major League Soccer. Go ahead, Jordan. I was just gonna say, why why do you say that? Like what distinctly about a playmaker would you say is dead? Because I, I'm I'm not saying that I disagree with you, but I think for people to understand, like you could be a 10, you could play in a 10 position, mm-hmm. but the the concepts of what we knew a playmaker as have just shifted. Yeah, you're right. So that's I should say specifically the idea of the central attacking number 10. Um, being like the the main creative outlet. Uh, it, it died when Jose Mourinho created the 4-2-3-1, right? There's no space in between lines anymore. Every single team's main defensive priority is to take away the space where, you know, number 10 and Ganches used to live. Uh, so now you have to find there's space elsewhere on the field Coupled with the fact that soccer is a pressing game, right? It probably always has been. It just took, it took us a Jurgen Klopp to really codify it and figure it out. Um, but throughout the history of soccer, most goals are scored in what three passes or less. Um, 
So the way you win is you win the ball in the middle of the field and you transition quickly. So you pair those two, the lack of space and the need for, for pressing, counter pressing and transitions. Uh, there is just, and then number three, which we can get into in the next, I guess probably the next uh, category is uh, they're just expensive, right? Number 10s are the most expensive position in the field in major league soccer. Uh, there's just no reason to have them. Just hitting on that expensive number thing, like I think about Columbus Crew getting a, an expensive player in in Celarion playing that playmaker position, and just the overall threat of having a person like that in that position. Do you think that makes teams defend you differently because they know how dangerous you can be at that position? So I haven't watched Zelarion closely lately, but he's incredibly mobile. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So that's like every yeah. if you can be mobile and be good at soccer. Amazing. Right. If you can be like Latif Blessing with a little bit more, a little bit more nuance to your game. Fantastic. But the number one thing is you have to be mobile. You have to be a runner in that position. Um, Whatever happens after that. So, yeah, if you're willing to spend to get both a runner and a footballer, that's great. Um, But like these teams that just go for. I mean, I don't mean to like I don't I feel bad name blast, but like they go for like a Tomas Martinez or like a Lucho Acosta uh, doesn't make any sense. So when you're thinking about that question that Joe said, do you and we contemplated this, right? Do you think outside backs will become more important in the way that teams play than central yeah. midfielders going forward? Oh, yeah. There's a specific question here that I got on a soapbox. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So here's the other thing, like outside backs. Yeah. Outside backs will become more more important. It's incredibly weird that they haven't since really, I don't know, probably since 2007, 2008, when Pep really started to change the sport. Um, outside backs have the, have the most emphasis in the attacking phase of the game. A, they're where teams press. Every team in the world, except Liverpool in the last two years, cues up their press on outside backs, right? The ball, tra- uh, the ball travels from a center back to an outside back. Every team builds a pressure pocket there. So that's the, te- the play you need to be good on the ball. And two, the free man attacking the space in the final third is also always an outside back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the only thing I think that's weird about this is the fact that it's taken teams so long to figure out the importance of this player and the different ways you can use that player. Are there MLS teams who you think are, are furthest along in that trend now moving towards fullbacks being more of a creative offensive fulcrum? Uh, so NYCFC, for sure. Uh, I thought the weirdest thing last year about Bob Bradley's team was that he did not do something different. There was about eight games left when they hit that, that, that slide. It was so clear that they needed to do something new with their outside backs. Teams were sitting more horizontally and vertically compact. And they were saying, your outside backs, Jordan Harvey and Stephen Betashore have to beat us. So the fact that they didn't move uh, Latif Blessing out there, even Mark Anthony K to left back, I thought was weird. Uh, what other clubs are doing it well? No, oh, do you, you're like perfectly, do you have anybody that comes to mind? <laughs> yeah. I mean, those two teams, I think are typically thought of as more of the offensively detailed and nuanced teams. And I know you critiqued LAFC's use of them a little bit there, but those two were the first, the first two names that jumped out of my head as well. Jordan, I don't know if there's anybody that comes to mind for you. Uh, not off the top of my head. I mean, the crew like, do, yeah. but it's yeah. not innovative. It's not unique. It's like the old Caleb like, is like still doing the wingers tuck in outside backs. You know, it's pretty generic, but he values them with Valenzuela and awful. Mm-hmm. 
and and one actually one that comes to mind for me is the Rapids a little bit last season with Sam Vines and Keegan Rosenberry. When Robin Frazier comes in, it's not necessarily these new tactical ideas, but his use of fullbacks with Vines occasionally stepping into midfield and dribbling kind of diagonally from left back into the heart of midfield, and then Rosenberry tucking in to form the back three. It's mm-hmm. not this game breaking stuff, but it's it's something different than what the Rapids had used under Connor Casey or under Hudson as well. Yeah. And I'm just, I mean, I think the, the curious thing is who's going to spend money on that position. I know that there's been research shown that the next dollar spent on defenders usually isn't as valuable as the next dollar spent on attackers, which I understand. But if you're talking about a salary cap league, trying to find competitive advantages for these teams that aren't going to spend like the big ones, I'm curious to see who's going to use a DP spot or two on their outside backs. Or a center back. Let's bring the center backs into this as well, just because I can't let an episode of this show go by without me plugging center backs. <laughs> I think what's interesting, you talk about this this one specific position, but when you were covering MLS and just from everything you've learned about the league and playing in the league, are there certain tactical or st- strategic trends that you've noticed on the field within the league as a whole? Oh, okay. Or so, or is are there a specific team that really stands out to you as to like this is interesting, this is different. Um, I want to know more about what they do. I don't necessarily have a great answer to that. There's two things that come to mind. Um, one is that the best tactic in Major League Soccer still, and this is a little bit depressing, but we saw it with San Jose for 15 games, and we saw it with LAFC. Uh, we saw it with the Red Bulls for a couple of years. The best tactic in Major League Soccer is like just trying hard for 34 games. Um, <laughs> With the lack of win bonuses, uh, the, the fact that everybody makes the playoffs, there's just so many teams that chill from week 10 to, to 27. You know what I mean? So, like, you look at the San Jose Earthquakes, who by just, like, literally by working harder than everyone else, um, kicked everyone's butt. And it's true. If you if you compete every week for 34, you're going to have a marginal difference that puts you in the playoffs. So that's number one. Um, number two, I would say that last year was disappointing because – there, the lack of innovation and like the lack of just of, of detail that these teams are showing, um, you know, Jesse left, Tata left, Vieira left. And I think that the new coaches are good coaches, but they didn't quite have the guts yet to try new and interesting things. So I thought last year was a disappointing year and for MLS. From your time in and around the league or from from anywhere else that you've observed, which coaches or figures in MLS do you see as the most interested in tactical development or creativity? So just to give you one name, so I don't go Lucci Gonzalez, I think is going to be the is going to be a star, right? Who knows whether what Dallas can do as an overall organization right now. Um, but if you look at the way his team played, I would think that he is the, the next stud to come through. And what makes you say that exactly? So one, it's attention to detail and repetition. I mean, that team, if you watch, not many teams, people watch them, but they were freaking good. I mean, if you saw it the way they smashed the Sounders in the playoffs to lose an extra time, that team was really good all season. Um, and largely just because they had their routines and their patterns down pat, but they weren't just, you know, robots. They had uh, multiple options and fluidity in the moment. And they also were a little bit new and different. So they caught teams off guard. Does that make sense? His problem is that he had a little bit of the uh, Burhalter priority set where he <laughs> over-prioritized some things and not, you know, under-prioritized others. Like they were too slow in transition. They couldn't create enough chan- or, uh, chances with their pressure. Um, 
But on the ball, they were really cool to watch. And I think that leads into actually another perfect tangential topic is that you wrote a piece on tactical periodization, right? First of all, explain what that is to listeners or just tell them to go read the article. That's fine, too. But for Lucha Gonzalez and FC Dallas, do you think they should have prioritized some slightly different things in that periodization time in preseason versus Lucha's first season in charge? Okay, so I have a story for this one. Um, (laughs) I wrote that. I wrote that. Uh, the idea of periodization is that, you know, in soccer, you've got to be able to do X number of things, whether it's just like defending and attacking or pressing and not pressing. You, every coach has a different number. Um, you know, think about the four phases, at least uh, defensive transitions, attacking transitions, defending and attacking. Uh, but you only have so many hours in the training field. So how do you, how do you basically create a plan or a process on the training field to make sure that you, your team can do everything you want, right? Does that mean that you have to work on defending first and then attacking next to make sure that you're good at defending? At least you can have, like, this is the Mark Dos Santos. Mark Dos Santos is like, we're going to get really good at at block set defending, and then we're going to figure everything else out. But if you're really good at, at block defending, you're hard to beat. Um, so probably like 48 hours after that came out, uh, I get a text from a friend and he says, listen to the SI Planet football podcast. I listened to it and it's Bob Bradley that day. And like third, I can actually tell you 31 minutes into the show, <laughs> Bob, Bob goes, ah, oh, someone sent me this friggin' article on periodization. Ah, <laughs> uh, this, it was so stupid. My friends or everyone that I coach with is like, we don't do any of that crap. And first of all, I'm like, dude, like <laughs> you decide my article on my crappy little blog to be the thing that you call out, right? Not Jose Mourinho, not the Portuguese football culture, my blog. Uh, <laughs> so I texted, I texted Bob. I was like, I'm not, I'm not like, whatever you, I, I, I don't, I didn't appreciate the way you said it, but it, it is what it is. You know, like we all say things a little bit too harsh uh, when we're doing interviews or podcasts. I was like, just tell me why you disagree. So I talked to Bob for an hour and he literally told me why everything I said in that, like, it wasn't about what I said, right? Cause I didn't make up this idea of periodization, right? right. It is generally taught and understood to be the, tr- the, the way to do things within coaching and definitely in American culture, in American coaching. And Bob was like, let me tell you why we, we do this with coaches poorly. And his point wasn't like, you can't go A, B, C, D. You have your ideas, your principles, your whatever idea. He loves to say ideas, right? Our football ideas. Um, and you do them every day. So you don't work on buildups one day and finishing the next. It's like you have these little details. And in every single drill you do, you have to do those details. Uh, and it's obviously it's more complicated than that. And I would say that, Bob, I might not implement what he did, but it was really cool of him to take the time to say why he disagreed. And of course, for him, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there is a different way to think about it. Well, I think, too, as you're coaching and you probably know this very well, as you've been doing it for a couple of years now, is like this idea of it's never just one thing. Right. You're you're working in a drill and that drill can involve different different sets of that periodization. Sure. Right. Like you're not only working on building out of the back, but you're working on that transition moment from we lost the ball in our build up into how are we going to defend in the middle third to, you know, make sure that we don't get broken down quickly or whatever it may be. So there's for always sure. a couple of things that are um so i like i agree with both i think that it's important and i remember that was a really like again going back to santa clara like there were definitely periodizations in our two-week preseason that Mm -hmm. i knew every year because i was there for 
six years. I knew every year going into preseason, we would work on 1v1 defending first, going to 2v2, going to group defending. Like the, the defensive principles were always the first thing that we would work on because we knew if we could do that well together as a group and buy into that, that culture aspect too, right? Yeah. That you're developing who you are in, in that periodization as well. Exactly. And I, what I would, my thought with Bob is, if, I, I don't know if your listeners know, I don't know if you guys have much time, like Bob's a savant. You know, that might be like an unpopular thing to say in American soccer circles. He is the smartest soccer person in the country. Um, not to mention he has the per, like a good personality to be a leader and a manager. And I do wonder that I think that he's probably right. You know, if his way of coaching is probably superior. But I think if you're not Bob Bradley, if you're not Jesse Marsh, uh, maybe if you're not Greg Berhalter, can you do it that way? And that the idea of periodization is a little bit of like, let's just make sure that we raise the floor for the mm. the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're, you're talking, I, we only have a couple more questions for you. And I'm curious, you spoke about FC Dallas and what they do. And I know that's a team that you used to play for, but if you're, if you're a player right now, Bobby, and you could go into any MLS team and just insert yourself into what they're doing, what position would you play? What team would you go to? It's obviously the Seattle Sounders, Jordan. <laughs> obviously give me the armband for the sounders uh that's a great question so the first one that comes to the top of my head would be the quakes to to talk to players about matias almeida and you know i do think that the man marking is like a little bit of a it's hard right (laughs) hard but i think it's also just like a little bit of like a gimmick it's like it's an in-group concept it's unique it's us Um, And it it galvanizes a group. But even more than that, apparently the way he talks to players makes them feel like they can conquer a mountain. Um, And I would love to be a part of that, a part of that type of leader. Um, who, how would you guys answer this? I think for me, the answer is based off of what Bobby, you just said about Lucci Gonzalez. I think going and observing what exactly he's doing and wh- how he's making this FC Dallas team tick and really changing their identity completely from Oscar Pereja to now under Lucci. I think that transition and understanding more about Lucci, the person and the coach would be fascinating. My first thought was playing in Philly for Jim Curtin in the, in the 442 diamond. Like it's just, he's one of the only teams that plays that. And I think, that last game against LAFC and just the dynamics of that game and the wildness. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just see myself playing in that midfield and saying like, it just seems really interesting to me that the culture that they've built there and, you know, even at, coming off of last year, how, how successful they were last year. Agreed. And just be around Jim every day. You know, yeah. one of the good people who just, who makes his players better. If you had to pick one or two MLS players, either from what you know, from what you see with your own two eyes, from MLS who may be moving on soon after soccer shuts up again, might be moving on to another league and getting a decent sized transfer fee. Who are those players and why? Oh, so this is such a good question now more than ever, because with what's going to happen with Major League Soccer in the new world market, I would be shocked if it wasn't a very good, you know, nobody's winning out of this scenario, but I would be shocked if MLS didn't come out one of the relative winners in the world market, because all of these players, all of a sudden being undervalued helps. You know, all of a sudden, all of these teams that had an X amount of spend, the X amount to spend can now only spend 30% of that. So for a lot of these teams, like, who is that? And all of a sudden, that's the MLS players. Um, that is, you know, like, instead of the idea that Reggie Cannon was going to go play to Bundesliga team for like the $2.5 million transfer was weird, right? I'm not saying he can't, but it's like the math of it doesn't add up. But now a Bundesliga, you know, mid-tier Bundesliga team might actually spend a million and a half, two million on their starting right back. 
Uh, so there's a whole bunch of players. I'll talk, mention the one that you guys said on your show with the, <laughs> with the draft. You got to think Edward Atuesta, mm-hmm. right? He's unreal. Yeah. Uh, Atuesta's one. I don't, I'm blanking on another name. So who's, who are the ones that you guys have on your list? Oh, I would say, no, sorry. I want to hear yours <laughs> first. Yeah. I mean, you can look at that LAFC roster, right? You've got Atuesta, who we've talked about probably way too much on this show already. You got Diego Rossi, who I think has, has fluctuated occasionally in form, but he's got that versatility up top to either play as a get in behind number nine or as a get in behind kind of left winger who can also drop close to the sideline as well. So you've clearly got those two guys. And then I look at a team like NYCFC as well, who we've already mentioned, but a bear is just such an interesting player. And I, I still don't know exactly what my read is on him yet. But I think Aber is a guy who could go and have success as kind of a space exploiting, get in the box, but also fully capable of dropping deep and linking up play. I really think that he is a talented guy who could do well at another level. Jordan, what about for you? How old is he? Uh, he's How like he's got to be like mid to upper twenties. Like that's got to right? be the the hardest thing for him for sure. I think about the the Houston guys and Manotas and Elise because you know that they've wanted to go and Albert Elise. Like I just feel like. If you're looking to score goals, that guy can uh, get after you pretty well on the right side. Yeah. So I just pulled up the standings. Uh, I would say Valen, I would expect Valen. So LA to go at some point for that two to $3 million price tag. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit higher. Uh, nobody really on the revs. Although I like that Dwan Jones pick, Joe. Yeah. Let's go. A little love for my, my left wing back. Uh, you know, for Orlando, the center midfielder, uh, Mendez hmm. has some juice. Be interested to see what, ha- what happens with him and Montero. Yeah, yeah, those are both really good, really good picks. I think Montero, he's such a unique player, and he's perfect for that kind of outside, occasionally up at the point of the diamond for Jim Curtin. Yeah, and then another low-key uh, low name is Cole Bassett. I do think that Cole Bassett is the best uh, under-17, probably, I guess, under-18 player now in the league. Um, I'm not sure that he's right for MLS or the Rapids, so I wouldn't be surprised if there was a price point that worked for yeah. them. I agree. And I know, I know Cole from working with the Rapids. I know Cole from being a youth player. He used to come and train with my, my club. So I, I will take all the credit for, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I, I know his aspirations are to go. So I think this might be the time, right? That they could find mm-hmm. something that works for both uh, club and player here. Yeah. He's an interesting talent. Cause I do feel like he sees the game a little differently than um, what he's been allowed to in in the rapid scheme over really uh, the Hudson era. Mm-hmm. So Bobby, we've gone through your background. We've gone through Bobby as Jordan, as Jordan uh, outed me on Bobby, the tactician. We've gone through some MLS related <laughs> questions. Get on your soapbox. Is there anything else that we, we didn't ask you that you think, oh, these guys are idiots. They should have asked me this question so I can talk about it. I mean, what's, is there anything else on your mind that you want to get off your chest before we let you go? Uh, I, I feel pretty strongly about the fact that teams shouldn't spend money on attacking tens, that it's a waste of money compared to what you can do with the rest of that money in the rest of your spot. No, that's, that's the main one right now. Just <laughs> generally, no, I mean, sorry, just like generally more innovative ideas, you know, interesting ideas. I don't know why you would think that in a league that doesn't get relegated and there's like a fair amount of both coaching, literally more statistically proven, more coaching security than any relative than any comparable league in the world. Certainly technical directors have a crazy amount of security. Why not a try things, but also just try things with a, with a multi-year plan. Uh, poor again, Colorado seems to have a multi-year plan. It was ugly for two years um but it seems at least be multi-year and we'll see if that comes to fruition i think now we're seeing the league fall in love with the colorado rapids for that reason and hopefully it gets other clubs to say you know we are more than 
than single year throwing darts here or there. We are actually clubs with multi-year spans and we can actually build layer to layer on that, um, which we have not really seen in the 24 and 0.2 years so far. The one article that I really will like makes even makes me think days after I I read it is the idea about doing different defensive uh, pressing within the game. I just thought that was so interesting. And you just spoke about creativity and like, you know, why not? Like, why don't we try this? Why don't we? Because it's just something different. And I had never I guess I really never thought about that, but I thought it was a really cool article. So I think people should read that one. It was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there, I'll say those two things. Um, thanks for the shout out on those. The one is yeah. that, like we said, when teams defend or press, they basically if you're pressing that day, you're pressing in a single way. You know, we think about the Red Bulls who are, quote unquote, a pressing team in the league. And it's roughly the same rotation every time. Um, and I just wonder why can't you change that up, right? Why can't you have a center or a, a striker go to a center back one time and the winger go to the center back the next time to just change the pictures to keep them guessing? Uh, pr- I think that pressing is one of the easier things to coach, right? The intensity and the and the culture behind it is hard, but the specific movements are relatively easy. And I think you could largely do that on a Thursday or Friday within a training week. Um, the second thing that I'll say that I've written about is. I want to see what happens with buildups, right? With the new goal kick rules, players can go in mm-hmm. the box. Uh, I think of buildups as if I, if you can break compare soccer to chess, as I did in one article, and there's three phases of chess, right? There's the opening, the middle, and then I don't even know what the last one's called the finishing phase. Um, the opening should be as it is in chess, the most rigid, you've got those different plays and, you know, we've all heard the funky chess names for those plays. And in soccer, we don't see that, right? You roughly have the center back split, the outside backs high, and maybe you have a little rotation with your six and like a single to double pivot, but it's not like somebody puts up an arm or calls a play, which I I don't understand why you don't like why the basketball and football call plays and soccer doesn't except that it's just in the DNA and the culture of what's always been done before. So I'm interested to see, you know, who did the closest was NYCFC NYCFC last year would like do five and five. They, when they played the three center backs, they would have like five on the 18 and then five would just go as far up as possible. And there would be 60 yards in the middle of the field. And then Johnson would put his hand up and like, they would come back and he would just drop the ball for them to pick up in that gap. Um, So I'm interested to see if teams can do new and cool things in that phase. Interesting. Bobby, thank you so much for all of your time and your insight. It is much appreciated. And I don't know about Jordan, but I know that I'm personally looking forward to reading more stuff on your website. And hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you, guys. This is really exciting. You guys are doing awesome work. I would say like important work. Um, Joe, I don't think he's told you this. Your voice is uh, a per- a really good podcast and VO voice. <laughs> right? Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank I appreciate it. I didn't know. When we first talked about this, I didn't know that you had that in your game. But uh, <laughs> it's it, it it's like really – some people just don't – like they can't do podcasts or VOs, and you have it naturally. Yeah. Appreciate it. Gosh, I love this. So much love for Joe in this podcast. You deserve it, Joe. <laughs> well, you know how I feel about you, Jordan. I already, yeah, I already I gushed over – Jordan came – people don't know. She came to talk to my U15 team. Uh, and she was amazing. I already gave her all the plaudits there. So she doesn't get more this week. <laughs> we appreciate you, Bobby. Thanks for uh, building our confidence and just having a fun uh, tactics chat with us. Thanks, guys. This was fun. 